Good afternoon, folks. Uh, hi, folks. I'm going to get everybody's attention if I can. Hi, folks. My name is Tim Mantle. I'm Colgate's Director of Alumni Affairs. And ordinarily, I make an introduction online to people that are watching from home at their computers. Um, today, since uh, we do have a full house and we're getting started a few minutes late, uh, you're now hearing what I typically give privately offline. We have two cameras that are set up in the back of the room. And I, I'm going to be talking to the camera on up top and welcoming folks that are at home. Uh, alumni and parents around the country uh, that are tuning in live. Um, we appreciate you uh, joining us. Uh, we invite you to, if you have some questions, to please contribute those questions uh, off to the right-hand side of your screen. There's a chat feature available uh, for alumni and parents and guests to participate uh, in the classroom. If time allows, we'll uh, invite some questions here uh, for <coughs> Professor Balakian. But now that I have the uh, attention of the room, I do want to thank uh, the undergraduates and guests that are here that allow us this really unique access uh, to this great class. Um, it's an exciting opportunity for our alumni and parents to participate the way they have been over last year in this. And our thanks to you for allowing us this chance to enjoy uh, this class together. And of course, our thanks to our professors, Bryce and Pynchon, for allowing us to do this. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to hand the floor over to Professor Bryce, uh, and she'll take it from there. Are you going to take my seat? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what, what an extraordinary honor it is to get to say a few words about Peter Balakian, the poet, memoirist, historian, translator, critic, and public intellectual, who is also, to many of us present here today, a teacher, <coughs> colleague, and friend. Peter's newest book, Ziggurat, came out last month from the University of Chicago. It achieves, writes Carolyn Forche, a brilliant assimilation of the historical, philosophical, political, and psychological. To her list, I would add art, architecture, poetry of the past, pop culture, science, the natural world, personal experience, and the national tragedy that was 9-11. <coughs> What unifies all of these disparate elements is Peter's great attention to and affection for the material world. As Yeats has said, and as Peter has quoted him, poems are never about things, but they can embody things. The most buttoned up term that I know for this relation between poetry and the material world <coughs> comes from Peter's learned friend, the poet Bruce Smith, who calls it thinginess. <laughs> In his introduction to an essay about poetry writing, Peter says, I believe that objects and artifacts can have animating powers. They can be more than evocative. They can embody what one might call a kind of psychic presence. A buried history or life can live in an object, especially an object that might be tied to one's life or one's sense of significant experience. Before Ziggurat came five books of poetry, most recently an edition of new and selected poems titled June Tree. Peter's nonfiction includes the best-selling memoir Black Dog of Fate and a best-selling work of history, Burning Tigress, about America's response to the Armenian Genocide. Last year, Knopf published Armenian Golgotha, 
Peter's translation of his uncle Gregoris Balakian's memoirs. <coughs> Born and raised in New Jersey, Peter was educated at Bucknell, New York University, and Brown. He's taught at Colgate since 1980 and is now the Donald M. and Constance H. Rivar Professor of the Humanities. He directs our creative writing program and was the first director of the Center for Ethics and World Societies. Among Peter's many awards and honors are the Penn Albrand Prize and the Raphael Lemkin Prize, Guggenheim and National Endowment for the Arts Fellowships, and the Karanatsi Medal, Armenia's highest cultural award given to Peter for his tireless efforts to break the silence that for decades surrounded the genocide of the Armenians by the Turks. There was a time when Peter's efforts went against the wishes of at least one person whom he loved very much. This is not what poetry is for, shouted one of his aunts after hearing him read poems from Sad Days of Light. Asked in an interview some years later, an interview with Rebecca Preston Mosby, who I know is here, there she is, <laughs> if art has the power to help us wrestle with difficult issues, Peter replied that he wants his poems, quote, to embody the complexity of life and the experience of being in the world in this particular time and place and moment not to offer facile answers to profound existential questions, not to allay our anxieties or stroke our certainties, but to make the past present, to make politics personal, and to offer the kind of solace that words on a page, words crafted beautifully, precisely, and surprisingly can. This, this one wishes to say to Peter's beloved aunt, this is exactly what poetry is for. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs> Jennifer, thank you, and uh, you shook me up a little, bringing the ghost of my aunt into the room. But of course, we can't escape our ancestors, can we? Um, look, I'm just so grateful to be part of this course, Jennifer and Jane. Um, I, you know, it's just a great pleasure and honor to be in this very rich semester of writers. Um, the course is really exciting. You know, I know those of you in the class know that, but for more than 30 years, really probably in some, although there was a break here and there in it. Um, the Living Writers course, which Fred Bush began in the late 1970s, um, has really brought the art and the making of literature and the meaning of literature together. And I, I think Jennifer and Jane are doing it so excitingly in now their second year of the uh, re- uh, <clears throat> birth of the course. Hey, are you hearing me okay? <clears throat> Do I need to be on that? <clears throat> I don't, okay. Yeah, nobody's holding. <laughs> I think, uh, I, I think I'm going to hold it for somebody if that's needed. Um, and so you never know what's going to happen up in a podium uh, for reading, you know. 
Uh, every week it's a different trip. And this course is a kind, you know, it's a heck of a journey for, for all of you in it. Um, it was a great conversation, students and living writers this afternoon. I thank you for it, and I look forward to continuing it afterward. I'm going to, look, I'm doing my best here to <clears throat> 45, 43 to 44 minutes. Um, and I want to try to do something that I hope isn't a flopped physics experiment, which is to really read from two books today, because, because my new book of poems is out, and, and yet to try to join the two books in a way that I hope makes some sense. Here's the idea. Um, I want to focus on the notion of shift and movement within narrative and lyric form. Okay, shift and movement. And then I want to <clears throat> reflect a bit on the notion of re-inhabiting places, okay, across genres. The idea that in one book, in one genre, you used a place, or it used you, you know, you used it. And in another moment, later on, years later, in another form, in another genre, you re-inhabit that place. All right, so th that, those two notions I'd like to play with. I hope that this can be ped you know, useful pedagogically in some way of exploring some facets of um, the writing process. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> for the course, um, I know students have read Black Dog of Fate, and I want to start there. And <clears throat> I want to note a few things briefly. You could say that it is a memoir that deals with the transmission of trauma across generations. And there are probably other ways of talking about this peculiar story, but that's one. Um, and I want to keep that notion uh, alive, too, the transmission of trauma across generations. Um, I grew up in a family <clears throat> that, in some sense, had a secret. And the secret, in this case, was a dark and violent historical past, the Armenian Genocide of 1915, about which people in my family did not speak openly. And, of course, openly is you know, maybe the key word here, because I came also to understand that as hard as people try to repress traumatic events, they can't fully do it, which is to say that the, the darkness of the Armenian Genocide past leaked out in that, or through that, sunny suburban light of Teaneck and Tenafly, New Jersey, 19... Circa 1960, we'll say. I mean, the story probably begins in sort of the late 50s, but the bulk of suburbia there is in the 1960s. It leaked out, and I got interested <clears throat> in the, uh, the way it leaked out in my adult life, looking back at the peculiar landscape that I grew up in, in the inner life of my family. I got interested in what I came to call encoded trauma, uh, and, and, and decoding the encoded trauma is certainly one of the 
um, dimensions of the Black Dog of Fate story. So movements and shifts were key for a story like this. I mean, movements and shifts are key for any, any work of art, but I, I want to focus it here on this particular memoir. Um, there was a certain kind of need to continue to shift from, shall we say, sunny suburbia to dark Ottoman Turkey, 1915. From rock and roll to literary criticism and surrealist poetry. From suburban teenage parties to encounters with my grandmother's genocide survivor experience. Strange encounters that often came wrapped up in folk tales or the rendition of a dream. From football to my father's exiled childhood. Or from a cross-country trip with my father when I was 13 to enigmatic encounters with a Sioux Indian chief on that trip. Or from an evening with Allen Ginsberg, which I hosted at my college apartment at Bucknell in April of 1973, to an encounter with my mother's memory of her mother's, my grandmother, the Death March survivors, <coughs> crack up in 1941, her PTSD as we know it today. In those days they didn't have such fancy clinical terms. So shifts, I guess I put the question out there and I'm really happy to, you know, I really hope we have as much time as you want to talk about any of these issues. Um, shifts allow you to make certain things happen. And I, I guess I, um, I think I won't give you my, sh my take on that. <laughs> I think I should just read. Um, and uh, maybe let it open up for conversation about shifts and movements and how they, how they expand the idea, or they have the potential to expand the idea of the form to open up the narrative. Okay, shut me up. I don't want to now become the teacher. I want to be the reader. All right. Um. So let me start with a, a short segment at the beginning from, from the first uh, chapter of Black Dog of Fate, um, the grandmother section. This is set in October of 1962. And um, the context for this, for those of you who haven't read the book, is, well, first, I mean, the really big issue is that the Yankees have just beaten the Giants, the San Francisco Giants. And may they have good luck this fall because they haven't, they've never won in San Francisco. And, and they're, they're noble characters. But, Okay, the Yankees have just beaten the Giants in the World Series in Game 7, 2-1, to one, uh, in a very exciting ninth inning. And my grandmother was a great Yankee fan, and this was a bond between us. And I think it was very much a part of her post-genocide American acculturation process. So that's the really big thing, right? And the other smaller thing is the Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> Um, 
And frankly, as I think Joe Torrey put it quite uh, succinctly the other day in a TV documentary about baseball, I think it was one of the Ken Burns, Ken Burns' newest thing, and they were asking uh, Torrey about uh, the 9-11 World Series. You remember the Yankees were playing the Diamondbacks in 2001, they lost in game seven, and Torrey, <laughs> and Torrey said, uh, with the inimitable wisdom of a Yankee manager. He said, hey, look, we're just here for distraction. And it's true. <laughs> as much as we follow these uh, wild athletic histories and traditions. Yeah, the real issue of, um, of the fall of 1962 was the um, possibility of nuclear war. And as a grammar school kid, um, this was really everywhere, you know from your weekly reader to all of the conversation that happened on the way home with your friends. Bomb shelters were being built in my affluent suburban town. Uh, you know, the idea of the end of the world was very alive. Um, so here we are in this little segment, um, October 62. I lay in bed one night sweating, filled with images of bomb shelters and cereal and metal containers, and decided to go downstairs for a bowl of frosted flakes. As I passed the partly open door of the TV room, I noticed that my grandmother was watching the late night news. Just as I was about to fling the door open, she took a long ivory pipe out of her purse, filled it with tobacco, and lit up. I was so startled that I stood frozen in the dark hallway, watching her through the two-inch crack between the door and the door jamb. I could hear Kennedy, Khrushchev, Castro, Cuba from the newscaster's voice. My grandmother drew long puffs on the pipe and put it down on the coffee table, then made the sign of the cross and said some Armenian words, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Then she crossed herself again, took a puff on her pipe, and said, Surp Atzvads, Surp Atzvads, Holy God, Holy God. She stood up, crossed herself, sat down, and pulled from her purse a dazzling blue and ivory <coughs> striped cloth. She placed it on her lap like a napkin and then opened up a big fat biography of Mary Todd Lincoln <clears throat> in which a 57 baseball card of Hank Aaron was tucked as a bookmark. For days afterward, I thought of my grandmother's strange ritual in the TV room because I felt guilty for spying on her while everyone else slept peacefully upstairs. I couldn't mention it to anyone in my family. Weeks later, after the Cuban Missile Crisis was settled, and enough time had passed, though, so that what I had seen seemed like fiction, I told my mother that one night in the summer I had seen Grand take a smoke on a pipe. Seeing on my face that this amazed and somewhat frightened me, she said, oh, in the old country at a certain age, women smoke pipes once in a while. It's a sign of wisdom. If I was relieved that my mother had given me an answer, 
I was unsettled that the answer had unfurled more questions. The old country, the phrase that came up now and then, a phrase that seemed to have a lock on it. I knew it meant Armenia, but it made me uneasy. If I asked about the old country, the adults would change the subject. Once my mother said, it's an ancient place, it's not really around anymore. Or where had it gone, I asked myself. If I lived in a house where the old country still had a presence, why wasn't there a map or photograph or beautiful drawing of it somewhere, like the one the Zandanellas had of Milan in their TV room? Since there was no picture of the old country in our house, and since I didn't have one etched in my mind, the old country came to me and my grandmother. Whatever it was, she was. Whatever she was, it was. Now I want to move to um, another section in the, in the story. And again, thinking about perhaps what's accomplished by certain kinds of shifts. <coughs> I mean, in, in, in one sense, the growing up in the suburban house in my family was a world of cultural collisions. Later on in the book, other kinds of collisions happen. <coughs> And I mentioned that I wanted to um, explore place a bit as well today. And my, my first introduction of that place is here um, in this chapter called Before the Nazis, at a moment in which I'm reading a book while commuting to my summer job. And my summer job is, is at 17 Battery Place. Okay, this is the last building at the tip of Manhattan. It looks right out to the Statue of Liberty and to the famous, now it's become more famous for me, the Colgate clock. Do you know the big Colgate clock on the Jersey side? It's still there. Um, lower Manhattan, very lower Manhattan, the financial district. I worked for a steam... Really, it was a stevedoring company. And my primary job was to be a male runner, okay, M-A-I-L. Uh, and what I was supposed to do was to run and pick up urgent mail at my company's clients, the big steamship companies, MOSK, Chilean, Cunard, and so on, and especially to pick up checks for um, sizable amounts of, of, of money that were to be gotten into the bank before 3 o'clock uh, on that day, because the money you cost your company in interest wasn't small on checks of those sizes. I mean, those checks would be million-dollar checks today, right, by our, by our economic standards, uh, by our inflationary standards. Okay, so... I'm reading a book while commuting. The book happens to be Ambassador Henry Morgenthau's memoir. 
of his years as ambassador to Turkey between 1913 and 1916, where he became the foremost voice of conscience about the genocide being committed against the Armenians by the Turkish government during those years behind the screen of World War I. And in his memoir called Ambassador Morgenthau's Story, published by Doubleday in 1918, it was quite a hit, the book. It was considered a very serious, interesting, important book about World War I. There are two major chapters on the Armenian Genocide. Um, and one of them is called The Murder of a Nation. And so I, who know nothing or very little about what happened to my ancestors, and certainly very, very little to next to nothing about what happened to my own family within that history, am coming upon this news of history from Ambassador Morgenthau. And so first, um, Okay, let me just give you two paragraphs here. Every summer after the last day of classes, I would head down to a summer job as a mail runner for a stevedoring for a steamship terminal company. I delivered mail and picked up checks from shipping companies, 50,000, 100,000, 250,000. My Aunt Lucille, who was one of the higher ups in the company, had gotten this job for me when I was 15. The office was at 17 Battery Place, the tip of Manhattan. I liked the freedom of running mail in the city in the summertime, the solitude amidst multitude. I walked in the shadows of buildings, snaked through crowds on the chopped narrow streets of lower Manhattan. Broadway, Trinity, Greenwich, Quenty Slip, Maiden Lane, Wall, William, Pearl, Water. I ran through the blackened gravestones in the cemetery of Trinity Church, practiced past patterns in an empty alley, got lost in niches of time and space, hidden entrances, basement trap doors, submerged steps off sidewalks, back alleys. I knew the network of freight elevators. I loved the heavy black accordion-like doors rolling open and shut with their clanking smoothness and the smell of Cuban cigars that lingered there. Now I'm skipping to the next chapter called The Murder of a Nation. <clears throat> in which I've begun reading the book. I ran off to get the check and returned to the office before the bank closed. I went back outside and sat sweating on a bench in Battery Park, a few feet from a steel band and two jugglers flipping balls and bowling pins. The Jehovah's Witnesses were passing out leaflets. The Hare Krishnas paced in front of me. I could smell the drunk under a fly-ridden raincoat a foot away. The central government now announced <coughs> its intention of gathering the two million or more Armenians living in the several sections of the empire and transporting them to this desol desolate an inhospitable region, the Syrian desert. The real purpose of the deportation was robbery and destruction. It really represented a new method of massacre. 
When the Turkish authorities gave the orders for these deportations, they were merely giving the death warrant to a whole race. They understood this well, and in their conversations with me, they made no particular attempt to conceal the fact. All through the summer of 1915, the deportations took place. Scarcely a single Armenian, whatever his education or wealth, or whatever his social class to which he belonged, was exempted from the order. I sat on the bench sipping hot coffee out of a styrofoam cup and recalled something my grandmother told me when I was 10. As we sat alone on the patio after Sunday dinner, it was late summer because I remember the sound of the cicadas in the maples and how the whole yard sounded like a great shaking rattle. My grandmother sat reclined in a green and white chaise lounge drinking a glass of tan. That's a yogurt and water and mint drink. She wore sunglasses, and all I could see was the hedge of rhododendrons reflected in the dark plastic of her glasses. You know the one about the man who went to Constantinople to seek his fortune? She said. Nope, I said, hoping to indicate that I didn't want to know about the man who went to Constantinople. After he had been in Constantinople for a while, he heard about a man from his village who had also arrived. And because he had left behind his father, mother, brother, sister, and his dog named Manuk, he went to find the man from his village. He was led to a pastry shop where he noticed his fellow villager eating kadaif and drinking coffee. Haji Ovan that is John who has made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. He cried as he walked into the pastry shop, have you come from Bitlis? Yes, Haji Ovan said, cutting his kadaif. Hey, what's the news there? What news do you want? How is my dear Manuk? For he missed his dog more than anything. I'm sorry, my friend, but Manuk is dead. Are you telling me that Manuk is dead? The man asked because he couldn't believe it. And yes, my friend, he ate the meat of your mule and died. Does that mean the mule is dead? Yes, my friend, the mule died while hauling your father's gravestone. Are you trying to tell me, Haji Ovan, that my father is dead? Yes, he lived two weeks after your mother's death. She died of a broken heart when she heard how your brother died trying to save your sister. <laughs> are you telling me that my mother and brother and sister are dead? Why don't you just come out and say it? My family is all dead, my home ruined. I don't know if your home is ruined, Haji Ovan said, but when I left the village, the Turks were tilling the soil where your house once stood. <coughs> the 
It was one of those bizarre stories my grandmother came out with occasionally that left me bewildered and speechless. As I watched the glare off her dark glasses, I sat there in silence, picking at the nylon bands of the chaise lounge until my mother appeared with a tray of watermelon and cheese. And everyone came out and started in on dessert. And I was relieved. Okay, so now, the second half of my physics experiment here. Um, to shift gears from Black Dog of Fate to a book of poems. And to ask the question here, for the sake of some engagement between the two texts, um, how, do, how, how do we as writers re to inhabit a place and re-inhabit a place. Something that writers do many, many times in many ways, many forms. Um, a place holds all kinds of layers of meaning, residuals, symbolic, encoded. Um, how do places deepen in the brain as you keep going with your work. So uh, the place, you know, I want to re-inhabit here is Lower Manhattan. Is um, that financial district where I worked from about 1966 to about 1975, when it was all said and done, almost a decade. It was a part-time job, it was a summer job, it was a vacation time job, back and forth and so forth. Um, now, much of my new book, Ziggurat, is, not all of it, but much of it is set in, in Manhattan between the mid-60s and about 2006. And there's one longish poem that's 43 sections, and it moves across various, oh, you know, sedimentary layers in my own life during this period. Um, at a certain point, the disaster of the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Towers came to find their way into my re-inhabiting of this landscape of my, of my youth. Um, and um, when the towers came down, I began to spend time thinking and, and exploring their extraordinary presence. I had watched them be built from the days that the ground was broken along what used to be called Radio Row, along Greenwich and, uh, and Liberty. And um, I watched them built, be built, and I even delivered mail uh, to the North Tower when the first 49 floors opened and the building was still in process. So it was pretty cool, you know, you're saying, wait a minute, I'm supposed to pick up a check here? I see nothing but bulldozers and cranes. But sure enough, if you made your way through the morass of machines, 
you got into these new incredible glass sky elevators and it was a new experience. Um, I have to say that, you know, for the sake of this little moment here of reading, I'm I, uh, thinking about writing these poems, you know, almost 40 years later. Um, I, I was interested in how I, I was interested in re-inhabiting those spaces and reimagining them. I do think, you know, I think Yamasaki's work was really quite brilliant. I think those are great pieces of late modernist architecture in their minimalism and austerity and their beauty still haunts me. Uh, their capitalist arrogance also haunts me and that's of course one of the interesting things about the, the, the richness of those buildings. Um, so um, I want to read, <coughs> I have a segment of poems called World Trade Center Mail Runner. <coughs> and um, I certainly was interested in, in, the, in re inhabiting those towers as spaces for imagination, as spaces of perspective and sound and light and language. World Trade Center Black Holes, 74. I may have flunked physics, but I was full of black holes and wind that was slamming the tower. As I rose in the glass box up to 80th with a check from Chilean line, black holes opened relativity, created frozen stars. In the sky lobby on the 99th, I loafed over headlines of John Dean's testimony and the suicide of a CEO. I heard the relativity of the wind. Everything was like. I was trapped in similes I hated. I couldn't leave my head. And so the sound was insidious, then beautiful. Then it was there. If I say I once heard bird bone pipes, in an old church in the Caucasus, like this wind blowing in the tracery of the top floors in the pipelines and farther up. Through the glass, I could see the other tower wavering, the silver like broken mica. I was falling matter dislodged by the idea of a place from which nothing can return. Jackie Wilson's tremolo, Paganini's broken wires, the frantic shaking of the small bells at the altar going up into some place beyond the smudged out sky above the radar needle, above the planes coming out of the fog on their way to Newark. It was possible to hoist an object out of a black hole with a rope. This bit of knowledge I was hanging on to. Now, another way I came back to that space um, was connected to a phone call I got a couple of days after the 9-11 attacks. It was an editor, a fellow writer who was 
um, planning to edit a book on writers' responses to 9-11. He asked me if I would do a piece. Uh, I said, haltingly, I would, knowing I wouldn't. Um, but having said I would, prompted me to get into the Amtrak um, at Utica train station and take the train down there a couple of weeks after, maybe a little less than that. Uh, and see it. This is called Going to Zero. How many of you have taken that train, that Utica train to Manhattan? All right, good. You know that experience of traveling down across that segment of the state and looking at the world through a train window. I still, I still maintain that trains are the most, uh, what can I say, nurturing places to write. It's, you know, there's nothing like it. I'm thinking now maybe I'm going to have, I'm talking about this with Link and with Lyle about perhaps offering a class in a train <laughs> so that we do most of it that way and it also cuts down on weeks of the semester. <laughs> um, but it was of course, um, it was something to see how the landscape had changed so quickly. <clears throat> so one, a canvas with less turpentine more hard edges, less bleeding. That was good for beauty. Frankenthaler in art news, in the dining car, crammed with parkas and laptops, microwaved cellophane, plastic plates and canvas bags, and the valley under fog as the cows disappeared. And when the green came back into view, I could see the SUVs floating on the throughway the cows oblivious to the revved engines of trucks. The river glistened all the way to Albany, and I could see flags on Baptist churches and resurrection trailers. God bless America on pickups. United we stand laminated to billboards as the fog settled, then lifted. And when I woke, a flag the size of a football field hung from the gray tower of the GW where the tractor trailers jammed beneath its hem as something sifted down on the silver-plated Hudson. And then the lights went out. Two. The faces on 7th Avenue blurred in the chaos of vendors and liberty scarves, freedom ties, glowing plastic torches, dollars and polyester. And inside Macy's, I was hit by cool air as stars and stripes forever floated down from women's fashions into the quiet aisles of Aramis and silk scarves. I wanted to buy the Frankenthaler, a modest early print, minimal monochromatic surface and perspective and dialogue on 24th off 10th. The gallery still smelled like wood and plaster. But I didn't stop. And when the train reached the stock exchange, the Yom Kippur streets were quiet. And the bronze statue of Washington was camouflaged by Na National Guard. I was walking my old mail route now, 
like a drunk knocking into people, almost hit by a cab, until the roped-off streets cut me at the arm. At Broadway and Liberty, the fences wound around the bursts of dust rising over the cranes and bulldozers, over the punched-out windows. I stared through a piece of rusted grid that stood like a gate to the Crystal River. I was sweating in my sweatshirt now, the hood filling with soot, as I watched with others drinking Cokes and eating their pizza of disbelief. Zero began with the Sumerians who made circles with hollow reeds in wet clay and baked them for posterity. At Broadway and Liberty, at 20 floors charred and standing, at Miasma people weeping, Anna's nail salon, Daikichi sushi, the vacant shops stripped clean in the graffiti of dust-coated windows. Something blasted from a boombox in a music store. Something in the ineffable clips of light disappeared over the river. I'm going to finish um, here with a poem um, that in some way I hope will join the sort of Manhattan, Lower Manhattan days of mail runner youth with the um, discovery of a poet who continues to uh, change my life, Emily Dickinson. Um, and this also intersects <coughs> my suburban football childhood days of playing ball. We were talking about, somebody asked me a question about that uh, in the afternoon session. Yeah, running back days um, with the discovery of poetry. <coughs> so um, this is called um, Reading Dickinson, Summer 68. I had had discoveries about poetry before Summer 68, but this is a moment. In the hermetic, almost dark, under the fluorescent diz, I found her broken nerves, smoke coming off the dashes, the caps like jolts to the neck, the pride open spaces between vowels where the teeth bit off twine and the tongue was raw, then cool with ice. The air of the stockroom after lunch was the marbleized silence of the small blank pages she stitched into privacy. Air of paper and faint glue, bond, carbon, graph, yellow pads. In the stockroom I could read alone, the confetti of money dissolved on the blank wall. After work I slid the numbered poems on blue mimeo into my playbook and felt the open field, 
the zigzagging past cornerbacks, the white lines skewed to heaven. Excuse my mood, unbridled, chemical, her scrawled messages smooth to the mind. Excuse my absence, again and yes, then, too. The cold stone of the Palisades was there after we split, alone, naked, in the Hudson, the water greasing me in the tepid chemical mix. Before I returned to the cement of 9W in my father's Skylark, the night black and soundless within. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So we have time, and I'm um, happy to have conversation. You know, I, I know you only heard these poems once, so I would say the deepest ways I felt are in the poems, and the deepest ways I could comprehend some of the strange stitchings of place to self and civic event, I'm really more, I'm more interested in civic event, uh, is really in the, in the poems. Um, I gotta leave it there, I think. Yes. Um, why writing? Was there an event in your life that just triggered it? Was this organic? Like, why did you choose to express yourself through poetry? Why, why writing? Boy. Yeah, I mean, that's always the, um, you know, the million dollar question that any, any person who goes on to make art in any field, you know, sometimes thinks about. Um, you know, <coughs> um, In the most basic way, the deep inner conviction that the medium you pursue is the realist reality, whether it's paint, whether it's metal or glass, whether it's language, um, whether it's film, it's the, it's, it's the reality that you believe in and your instinct to pursue that reality is part of who you are. What's interesting about language, you know, what remains so um, profound is the way phrases, among the many things, let me say, among the many things that are profound about language, the way the language exudes Consciousness, it remains mysterious at some level. Language exudes consciousness and many other, you know, and all the things that are embedded in that. Barbara?
that I do, and I think that um, that I'm getting some insight from the fact that I have always identified with you in your processing of the transmission of trauma about the Armenian genocide. So I grew up with the Holocaust in my family, and I feel like the same kinds of damage and strength were offered me, even though the transmission process was exactly the opposite. It was like verbal diarrhea uh -huh. after the Holocaust. Mm. Right, Barbara, you know, it's such a, um, a heavy, large, rich notion you're putting forward that it, it you know, really seems to me like we should have a symposium here on that, you know, a two-day, I mean it, a two-day symposium on it. I, 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 you know, I, to try to answer it now, I think, would take up an enormous <laughs> amount of time. It's a large, heavy, you know, and I know you and I have been talking along the edges of that, you're, you're kind of crystallizing something here now in a new way, and so let, let's keep talking about it is what I'll say, and I'm glad that you put it out there, because it's a big, big, heavy, weighty notion about education and history and self. <coughs> yes, yeah, okay, Danielle, sure. Sure, I don't know, I mean, I've been asked to read a poem, and it's, gosh, it's so nice to be asked. I mean, heck, <laughs> I don't want to say no. No, I'm not going to read it. <laughs> okay. Um, but I want to do this. Are you, do you, are you okay with that? Of course. A poem? Uh, briefly, I got interested <coughs> in this book, among other things, in some of Warhol's silkscreen prints. And they allowed me to find ways of mediating history, which is to say, because Warhol did silk screens that deal with, that dealt with edgy current issues in our culture in the early and mid 1960s, I found those prints exciting and also intersecting with history that I had remembered as well, as a child, more as a young, you know, as a kid. Uh, so, there are se and there's a lot more to say about that, but there are a series of poems, and this one that Danielle's asked me to read is called Warhol Electric Chair 63. 
Um, and it was a silkscreen that Warhol did to, I don't know, embody, commemorate the last act, supposedly the last act of capital punishment in New York State. It happened at Sing Sing. Uh, then and it's a it's a it's quite a it's a quite a red and green palette to this Warhol electric chair 63 the red spreads like Christmas wrapping the green a field in a Caucasian rug it's almost beautiful without the metal plates for the head though the plug on the floor is visible before decorator colors and Hockney, Calvin Klein in the summery Hamptons, before there were switches to break the flow. My mother used to say, never touch a radio when you're in the bathtub. Never fly a kite near transmission lines. But still, it's furniture. Still, it's a typical American way to go. It's Sing Sing, the silhouette of Ethel Rosenberg. In the rheostatic air, the absent man heard, she loves you. The British invasion and the flat line arrived at once. Outside, Negroes were eaten by dogs. Johnson was sworn in. Cuba turned red in the Green Sea. Well, I, I've done most of my work in the form of the poem, you know, and the memoir came uh, out of a, you know, a need to tell a certain kind of story uh, that was a family story that evolved into a story that engaged history. Um, I'm, um, I can't call myself a historian, though I've written a I've written a hybridized nonfiction book that deals with the uh, Armenian Genocide and in large part the U.S. engagement with that event. Um, those were sort of, um, you know, particular kinds of callings to write those books. Mostly I work in the form of the poem and, and, and the, um, the essay. I'm working on a book of essays now. Um, they're literary essays, you know, that owe something to, you know, literary criticism and cultural criticism, but, but um, my artistic engagement is mostly in the lyric poem. D don't know when the prose form will call again. I don't know. It might, you know. It still things bat around in the head. Uh, so you got to be on call. <laughs> Rebecca? Yeah. Maybe one of the uh, younger poets prior to were 22 and maybe kind of coasted on that and maybe not come up to that 22 standard again. And I feel like he's kind of gone the other way. And your work keeps getting better, keeps getting better, and, and so Ziggler is in the, in my opinion, the top rank of, of uh, poetry books. And I just want to know what you actually do, physically and emotionally do, to keep getting better rather than to just write. Well, that's very generous. Thanks. You know, I, that's very kind. Um, and um, 
Um, all I could say is that um, the hardest, I mean, it seems clear as you study, as you study culture and literature and art that, you know, you're, you're aware that anyone who goes on doing it after a certain point uh, struggles to not repeat themselves. You know, that's, a, um, that's a something that happens often is you get comfortable in something. But also uh, to maintain a continuity with what your deepest, um, you know, visions are. Um, so that's always a challenge. I mean, I don't know if I meet it, but the challenge is not to repeat oneself and to keep growing. Uh, look, I think just personally, like um, the way you worked out when you played ball, you know, the way you work out as a writer is really by the continual diet of reading you're doing and the way in which you're, pro you're, tr you're transforming what you're reading. And it would be, I think we should have, you know, I think Jennifer and I were talking about this at one point too, that we should do a panel <coughs> at the Summer Writers Conferences uh, on, on writers reading. You know, what we read, how we read, and what we do with what we read is really <coughs> at least the challenge for every, I think, writer as the years go on and you keep wanting to push forward with the form and push yourself to new places. So um, that to me, you know, is key. And also the, the idea that we keep, <coughs> we keep reading odd things, not predictable things, weird things, you know, like a book on, um, on the history of zero, which was a really rich book for me, or Leonard Woolley's excavation of the ziggurat at Ur. Um, uh, and a wonderful thing about the electronic age is the amount of stuff available. The days in which to do the research to write the long poem in this book, I, I'd have I, I've spent a, you know an extra year in the library just pawing through reference books to find what I needed. And now, my God, as long as my printer cartridge is good, <laughs> it comes pretty fast. So I think you know. That's key to it, is, is how, how you kind of pace your, how you create your, your, your intellectual menu. And I also think, you know, we talked about this, Rebecca, a few years ago in, in the interview you, you know, graciously did with me. And that is that um, I think it's still, you know, everybody's different. There are no rules. There's no one right thing or wrong thing. But for me, it's certainly helpful to be, to, to, to be in touch with what's happening, you know, in the world you know, in a very daily way, whether it be the economy here, whether it be um, human rights issues in other continents, or whether it be, you know, what uh, heavy metal artists are doing in New Zealand. You know, we're, we're able to be, to, to draw from that. The, the, the downside of that is you can be overwhelmed by it and crushed by it. And there are moments when you really need to say, I got you know, I really need to step back. I need to create the requisite silence for the work. So I always like what Neruda said about the need to shift between solitude and multitude and knowing how to do that and when to do that. And believe me, it's, and it's hard to do because it's easy to get crushed by multitude. But I, that's probably a good place to, to stop. Okay, and there are, are there books out there? Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, thanks so much. Jennifer and Jane, thank you.
Thanks. Thanks, man. You coming? You coming up yeah. for a drink and dinner? Good. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks. I have all your books, and all of them are signed. <laughs> no problem. Although they make great presents, Lee. <laughs>